Hi, my name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Framescast. And on today's episode, I talk about the trials and tribulations of independent filmmaking in Britain, the Baraka Blu-ray leaves my jaw on the floor, and this week's featured review will be on Of Gods and Men. Before I get on with all that though, I do want to quickly talk about the blog. Um, some of you may have noticed that the appearance has changed greatly. The old template kind of um, got to the end of its useful life and I've decided to go with a new look and film. And you might notice that there are some pages, or at least there are some tabs for pages. I haven't actually put them all up yet. But the one you need to be aware of is the one with exclusives written on it. And that page is up and running and there will be shows posted on there which will not be coming out on the main feed. They might be kind of quite different in um, content or style to the ones that do come on the feed. But hopefully what I'm going to try and get is a show turnaround of at least one every other week. We're actually averaging about one a week at the moment, but I can't promise that will keep up. There are various uh, factors getting in the way of recording shows such as work. And the next topic I'm going to be talking about, because you will notice on the blog, one of those pages is labelled Productions. And although there's actually nothing on it yet, that is actually in reference to my own film, which I am currently on pre-production on, with a likely shoot date of September 2012. The film has the working title of Air Drawn Dagger and is being financed by myself and some other investment now. It is a truly kind of independent film. Um, I don't have any kind of uh, official backing in terms of kind of studio or anything like that. And I kind of just thought it might, um, well, obviously going to be incredibly highly self-indulgent, but it might be kind of quite interesting for um, people to hear kind of how I've arrived in this position. I know there are a lot of people out there who I kind of come across on forums and who listen to other podcasts who are themselves independent filmmakers and struggle really to kind of get backing for projects that they might have or have to go through quite a laborious task to secure funding from various financing bodies and I thought I would just talk a little bit about um, the situation in the UK and how I've experienced it over the past few years. My background is that of a music video and commercials producer. Um, I also did quite a lot of uh, corporate work over the years. Um, mainly most of the bands I was working for when I was doing uh, music videos were artists that had been signed to Mercury Records and Atlantic. Now the idea was that we would kind of make low budget videos and electronic press kits for the band in order to kind of test them with various markets. Some of the bands kind of faded into obscurity, some of them went on to bigger and brighter things. One of the bands we worked with uh, called Dear Eskimo later became the Ting Tings who have enjoyed a number one hit in the UK and um, if you're familiar with um, Apple adverts you will know a couple of their songs have been used on those. I used to actually think uh, whilst I was at university that being a music video producer was what I wanted to do with my life and what I found very quickly when I did start producing music videos was that I actually didn't really enjoy it that much at all. Perhaps it was because of the people I was working with or the bands I was working with, but I didn't really find myself enjoying the experience as much as I wanted to. And roughly, I think it was about 2007, I kind of decided to kind of jack it in and start trying to get into film production. And this led me to a journey which was incredibly frustrating and at times very demoralising. Under the last Labour government there were various regional funding bodies established to help promote filmmaking and young filmmakers or even just um, new filmmakers in that region. I live in Manchester and the funding body around here was Northwest Vision and every year Northwest Vision would have various 
incentives and I, I suppose competitions might be the wrong word but programs to help people get funding for small budget short films now what would normally happen would be that you would have to submit a script and a proposal and you would then go through a kind of tendering process and the range, the money would range from something like £4,000 up to £10,000 depending on how long the, the films were going to be. All of this application process would be quite a long drawn out process. You'd of course have to have the scripts, you'd have to really kind of sit down fill in the forms which there were numerous pages of and then you would send off your application and hope for the best. Normally to give you an idea of how many people would apply there would be four pots of money normally about I suppose again between four and ten thousand pounds and Northwest Vision would receive about 300 applications. Invariably what you would find is that a few weeks later you would get a genetic letter through the post that said essentially thanks but no thanks and this time you have not been successful. You would not get any kind of feedback as to why your application had not been successful and were le normally left with a rather patronising message to keep on trying. Now of course I would not try and make the claim that the films that were commissioned and the projects that were given the go-ahead were miles better or worse than what I and my friend had actually submitted but what was incredibly frustrating about the process was that it was abundantly clear to people who were kind of had a slight bit of knowledge of how the kind of funding worked that you were in fact part of a massive box ticking exercise. The issue with film in the UK is that too much emphasis is placed on the fact that it is art rather than commercial. Now of course I realise what I just said might kind of fly in the face of uh, in what many people's view of film should be but the kind of point I'm trying to make is that it was always kind of seen as this kind of niche little thing that you hang up in an art gallery and you didn't the powers that be didn't really seem to kind of look at film as a way of generating money like they do in America and of course there's a fine balance to strike between art and commerce but I certainly think that the problem with Britain was that it was too much emphasis on this art aspect and the other factor counting against many people was New Labour's other rather frustrating obsession which was that of political correctness especially in the public sector. Now having worked in the public sector I can safely say that it was a case of political correctness gone mad. I am not lying when I was once forced to attend a seminar in which we were told why certain words were offensive and one of those was nitty gritty. I will not tell you why this is an offensive word, it is one of the most pointless things you will ever hear but the simple fact of the matter is that the local authority that I work for spent half a million pounds coming up with this and it was for everyone in attendance no matter of race, gender, colour or creed or whatever a complete and utter waste of time but it was New Labour's obsession and unfortunately it filtered through to how funding was distributed for projects such as filmmaking. I have long since said that one of the worst things you can be is average. If you simply conform and are just a normal member of society you end up paying the most in taxes, you end up really just a kind of a cog in the machine, perhaps it's a slightly misanthropic view to take but I think it is 
quite true that you are kind of marginalised in the fact that you don't quite get the opportunities and the handouts that many people come to take for granted. How this manifested itself when applying for film funding was thus there was a real bias towards applications that were from ethnic minorities or people with disabilities and please don't get me wrong I am not kind of some kind of racist who believes that white people should be given preference over others but the simple fact of the matter was if you wrote a average to good proposal and you were say for example of Asian descent you were more likely to get through the application stages if you were similarly white with an average to good application. Now I'm a firm believer in that it should be a very simple process that what people perceive as being the best applications should go through like it should be with if you apply for a job it shouldn't matter if you're gay or straight black or white the person who is most suited to the job should get the job unfortunately New Labour had an obsession with representation which I think kind of didn't really do much to kind of heal racial divides in this country but that's a completely separate subject but the simple fact that Applying for funding was an extremely frustrating task, knowing deep down that the powers that be weren't really out there to kind of foister new and exciting talent. Moreover, they were there to say, yeah, well, we do provide funding in this part of the world, and look, 60% of our applicants are white, 20% are black, 20% are Asian, we're doing our job and hitting our quotas, and that was how it felt. And again, I became incredibly disillusioned with this entire process and kind of gave up a couple of years ago. Last year, however, I found that my enthusiasm for wanting to get involved with filmmaking again had returned. And for the first time in my life, I think I felt ready to make the step into film production. Now, I've tried writing screenplays before many times and the, some I've completed, some I haven't. But what I've always found is that I've never really had an idea for a screenplay comes to me that I've genuinely deep down thought was original and actually told an engaging exciting story and I had that feeling last year when an idea came to me and it suddenly felt like I was at the stage in my life where where I think my life experience is such that I can maturely and originally tell a tale that I think people would enjoy watching the screenplay, as I said, is called Air Drawn Dagger. I'm not going to kind of get into the plot details that will follow on the page. And what I decided to do was, sorry, when I refer to the page as well, I mean the page on the blog. And what I decided to do was to circumnavigate the minefield of trying to raise funds through the official channels to try and get this film made. Now, obviously, we've had a new government in Britain, and they have completely done away with many of the funding bodies that help film and have really kind of put an emphasis on people trying to fund things themselves through private equity investments mainly because for the people giving the money it actually provides them with um, massive tax rebates but I decided that I would fund the film myself with a couple of other friends and the idea would be that it would be kind of an investment in the future now I don't have any kind of grandiose ideas for this film being shown in cinemas what my idea is to make the film the budget is not huge it's not small either it's an amount which I'm I'm going to keep to myself because what you tend to find is that budget becomes a point of criticism for people for a film like Monsters some people said oh didn't they do a great job with the money they had and then other people say well 
you can tell it didn't cost very much and to me I think it kind of clouds the issue of the story that's being told and what I've decided to do is to simply make the film and after it has been edited and mixed and what have you I'm going to simply give it away through BitTorrent and through download and things like RapidShare and I will probably sell DVDs for something like £5 just to actually cover the cost of making the thing and just get the thing out there and seen. I know so many people who they watch films like Primer and The Blair Witch and then decide well all you need is £3,000 to go and make a film then if you make a really good film someone will go and watch it and they basically spend the next four years of their life traipsing around the rip-off of film festivals I think that's another subject perhaps what a kind of false economy that is but and then these kind of films just sit there and they don't do anything and they move on to the next thing and it's all forgotten about what I've decided to do is to in, put my money where my mouth is really and I suppose it's a pretty big risk and there's I suppose you could say I'm kind of being quite arrogant but I mean hopefully the end product will show that there is something in me which could lead to more investment in the future in the terms of bigger projects and stuff that I've written now obviously I'm kind of not stupid enough to believe that the whole thing might be a complete catastrophe but I've kind of decided that in my own way that I want to be a filmmaker and I can sit around on my ass, kind of thinking and talking about it all day or I can get out there and actually try and do it and if I fail you know what the hell at least I can say I tried and also I think you know when you say I tried well I might spend the rest of my life trying to do this but at the very least on my deathbed if I can look back and say well you gave it your best shot I think that will be to me anyway a source of immense satisfaction on with the next topic on this episode and I think I have fallen into a trap on the blog and in the podcast of complaining about shoddy blu-rays and I've decided where possible I am going to champion the very best the format has to offer and I'm going to kick things off in this episode with Baraka. Now it is actually quite hard to kind of say what Baraka is about. I'll have a stab in a bit but it belongs in a kind of category of non-verbal filmmaking and it's a type of filmmaking which I think kind of really can kind of trace back to the birth of cinema when obviously it was silent and all you had was images and the odd cue card to kind of tell you what was going on. It was fine for audiences then and perhaps because of the invention of sound and whatnot we kind of have perhaps largely forgotten what this type of filmmaking is actually like. Now Baraka is directed by Ron Frickle who was a cinematographer and editor on Godfrey Reginio's Corey Anastasi released in 1982 and there, it was a film that had two sequels of which Frickle wasn't involved but if you haven't seen the Quartzy trilogy I would certainly recommend checking them out they are quite incredible 
films and I will be talking about them in a great more detail I think on an episode um, in the future and I will probably go into more detail on Baraka in that episode but they are films that kind of use things like time lapse and slow motions and often kind of breathtaking shots that juxtapose the natural world and the human world. Now of course we're kind of very new, used to kind of time lapse and slow motion that kind of thing but these films really did kind of introduce these types of techniques in in a creative way. Made in 1992 in over 152 locations in 24 countries, Baraka actually means blessing in a variety of different ways. Now like I said I think it's almost impossible to really kind of define what Baraka is about and as I suppose pretentious as it sounds it is a film which will mean many different things to almost every person that watches it. I think it is best viewed as an experience of which you can draw your own conclusions from. For those familiar with the Quartzi films, Frickle uses many of the same techniques, obviously time lapse, slow motion and wonderfully composed tracking shots to show the world and its relation to mankind in a way which is both wondrous and I think ultimately terrifying at the same time. One of the things I think which I've heard a few people say about it and it's a critical word which I've heard ad nauseum over recent years which is that you might say it's pretentious well whatever I mean I, I kind of the, the use of the word is so often employed in completely the wrong context and I think really people should look it up before they actually use it but it's one thing you might say about the film I think it kind of transcends that type of basic criticism and is actually something wholly more wonderful I actually watched it with my girlfriend and more often than not we watch films kind of at night and afterwards we tend to go to bed and this film we we started watching it about 10 o'clock and it finished about half 11 and we were still up at two o'clock talking about it it is a film I think that really promotes discussion and debate one of the things that I took out the film was a sense of the duality of mankind we are kind of capable of abstract and creative thought and able to kind of produce kind of wonderful things and express ourselves through art religion and technology yet at the same time we are capable of completely and utterly barbaric irrational acts and I was left feeling quite humbled by Baraka and it never feels preachy or kind of overly worthy it's not what I call um, laden with the Bono effect which is that we all have to kind of be preached to and I think it actively encourages you to take stock of the world and your place within it. I kind of found myself questioning the notion of man-made constructs such as borders between countries and the notion of race because what Baraka does is it kind of shows you in its multitude of locations that we are all capable of kind of creating wonderful places and worshipping our various gods yet at the same time we can also take part in things like genocide and you see that reflected in the fact that you see the killing fields of Cambodia and the death camps of Auschwitz and it kind of to me anyway made me really kind of think about the notion of race as well as a kind of man-made thing on a DNA level we are all almost identical and it's only through kind of the difference in colour of skin that we kind of recognise the difference within our species yet what Baraka shows is that we're all 
similar and that there is no kind of real difference between us good or bad but like I've said these are all kind of conclusions that I've actually drawn from one viewing of the film and I think I will have to go back to it with the Quartzy Trilogy and really kind of get a little bit deeper after a few viewings of it but you can probably tell by the uh, possible nonsense that I'm waffling that I think there is something in Baraka which is quite special and really kind of worth seeking out but the real reason why I want to talk about it on today's show is by far in advance this is without doubt the most incredible blu-ray I have ever purchased now my collection at the moment stands at about 300 and of course I've had things like Avatar which was the kind of the benchmark last year 2001 which obviously was an absolute treat to see but Baraka literally left me speechless as to how incredible it looked the film was actually shot in 70mm on the Todd AO format and the cameras were actually kind of specially adapted by the crew for the film along with the motion capture rigs which were completely groundbreaking when they're employed at the time it's very much, I know just referenced Avatar but kind of think about it in the same way that they had to specially design motion control and things like that for Baraka in the same way that James Cameron had to specially design the cameras for Avatar and for anyone who's seen a 70mm film projected before it is one of the most impressive spectacles any cinephile can ever really ever hope to see I've seen a few films 2001 and El Cid projected before from original 70mm negatives and the image is absolutely jaw-dropping and obviously with the invention of DVDs many of these films got transferred over now some of them were absolutely incredible Lawrence of Arabia I still think stands up on um, DVD as being one of the best ever produced obviously Ben-Hur there were two releases of Ben-Hur that I own there was an original one I think which came out in about 2002 which was okay and then there was a re-release a few years ago on a four disc set which was absolutely amazing and we are soon to be um, blessed with the Blu-ray of Ben-Hur and as I understand they have done a pretty fantastic job of that Blu-ray I think has been a godsend when it has been done properly and there have been a lot of restorations lately especially 4k restorations things like Taxi Driver and the Bridge on the River Kwai and really kind of the champion of this uh, type of restoration has been Sony Pictures there's a brilliant article I will actually post up on the blog along with the notes for this episode from the guy who's head of the restorations over there talking about the kind of the care and attention they take and he really goes to town on excessive noise reduction in films I've seen a lot of blog entries and a lot of Facebook postings and Twitter posts about noise reduction and how the kind of the war on grain and how it is kind of really I think annoying cinephiles I know I avoid films which I hear have been excessively noise reduced like the plague but Bracca is one of the films which I think is a absolute monument to how good a blu-ray transfer came be and in 2007 the original 70 millimeter negative it's actually 65 millimeter actually contains the picture there were other five minutes taken up with the sound was scanned with an 8k restoration which is to give the best possible picture transfer the entire process took about three weeks after which there were 30 terabytes worth of information pictorially at least to be 
used for the Blu-ray presentation, along with also a new remastering of the soundtrack to DTS HD. And even after the compression from 30 terabytes to something like 40 gigabytes, the image is absolutely breathtaking. Now, Baraka doesn't use any kind of CGI or anything like that. Obviously, there are some kind of artifices in the fact that, all because of the time lapse and the motion control and things like that, but hands down on my television, I've got a 50 inch plasma TV, the picture was absolutely jaw dropping. Now, you don't even need a 3D television to get the depth of field that you do out of the Blu ray. I think it is really a testament to how good the original negative is that this presentation looks as good as it does. But I actually think that the reality generated by the clarity of the image adds to the overall emotional experience of watching Baraka seeing the world that clearly in front of you and obviously the kind of you know I'm gonna might verge off into the kind of pretentiousness again, but seeing kind of the damage that we do to the earth as a species and the way in which we kind of reduce the production of animals down to such a kind of clinical level. Seeing it so clearly on the screen really did, I think, make it seem all the more real and profound to me and my girlfriend. We were both during the film kind of commenting like how drawn into it we were. And I think that is so helped when you have an image that is so clean and so clear in front of you. Perhaps we might have had the same experience if it was just a normal standard definition DVD, but for some reason I think in this case it really helps portray the message of the film, or obviously what the in you interpret the message of the film to be. The remastered soundtrack is also pretty incredible, the fidelity of the music. There is obviously no narration to it at all, but the fidelity and the use of the sound channels, both the front and the rear, really envelops you into the experience of Baraka. And it's the kind of thing I think, having been to places like Disney World, where you see these kind of like 360 degree presentations, it's the closest I've ever come to that kind of experience in my own home. And I kind of really am so thankful as a film geek and a cinephile that I have been given this opportunity to see it. I know kind of perhaps something like Avatar is the preferred um, demo disc of choice for many people, but I would really champion that you go out there and get hold of Baraka. It doesn't cost very much, I think it's about £10 off Amazon. Um, I think you can get it for even cheaper in America. There is no difference in the American edition and the European edition, by the way. They are both exactly the same disc. And there is also a documentary on the film, which is about an hour and 20 minutes, um, in HD on the disc. So, which really kind of like gets into the production and things like that. So, Baraka, please go out there, buy it. I will probably do another show on it in the near future. And I do apologise for um, talking a load of airy fairy waffle, but obviously I've only seen it once, but I'll go back to it. Oh, <laughs> 
Nasser doit avoir une protection militaire. Je pense que ça n'est pas souhaitable, non. Et comment pouvez-vous dire ça Et qu'est-ce qu'on fait s'ils viennent au monastère On se laisse tuer gentiment. And now on to this week's featured review, which will be on Of Gods and Men. On the 27th of March 1996, seven French Trappist monks from a small monastery in Algeria were taken hostage and two months later found dead. The exact circumstances surrounding the death remain unknown, but this amazing and incredibly moving story has been brought to the screen by director Javier Bruvot. The film begins by showing the peaceful harmony with which the monks live with the local village high in the Atlas Mountains. Despite the fact that Algeria is actually a Muslim country, there is no conflict between the monks and the impoverished villagers, whom they provide medical supplies to, and along with the odd piece of advice on love, as well as selling their honey they produce at the local market. Indeed, they are as much as the part of the village as anyone, and the villagers themselves embrace and love them very dearly. The tranquillity of the situation is disturbed by the rising Islamic extremism in the country and the near state of civil war Algeria was in in 1996. The terrorists began by bombing cities and then this escalated into the random killing of people including women for not wearing a hijab and young people being targeted for showing biases towards western culture. All this goes on seemingly quite far away from the village in of God's Men until some Croatian workers who are friends of some of the people in the village are murdered nearby by a group of extremists. The head of the monastery, Brother Christian Bay by Lambert Wilson, initially declines the offer of protection from the military without consulting his fellow brothers, leading to the monks to decide whether or not to stay in the village or leave because of the threats. Some are resolute they must stay in order to do the good work that the village requires. Others feel it is their destiny to stay. And some of the other monks naturally feel quite conflicted as to whether or not they should stay at all. Knowing the possible fate that awaits them, all the monks eventually decide to stay, regardless of the consequences, leading, of course, to the tragic conclusion. Now, of course, this being on a, based on a true story, as an atheist, I was, at first, I think, slightly um, prejudging the monks and the story before I went into the film. I thought it was incredibly easy to kind of condemn them for staying. It seemed to me initially such a kind of a tragic waste of life. And to look at it in terms of kind of simply religious factors, I think really is a detriment to the film and a detriment to the characters. What you see over the course of, of Gods and Men is the fact that these monks are defined by what they do. They have accepted their role in the world is to live in this monastery and to help these villagers. One of the monks, Celestine, recalls a journey home in which he went out for, to dinner with his mother to a restaurant and with the other members of his family were there as well. And he is deeply conflicted of whether or not to stay or go and he begins to talk about the experience of going home and he imagines his life in the town and he talks about how he would have seen himself becoming a counsellor or continuing his vocation as a plumber and what he realises when he's talking to Brother Christian is that his role in life is to stay in the monastery 
he knows that this other world is out there and he is not a prisoner of the monastery he can leave any time he wants but it is but it's the monastery that defines him as a person and what he does there and to me anyway i think i found this kind of acceptance of one's place in the world to be incredibly profound i think a lot of us kind of spend our time saying well I don't know, I, I work in an office, but I, I really want to be a photographer. And we spend our whole life seemingly kind of chasing these ideals and these dreams that kind of never kind of perhaps materialise. For some people, they obviously do. But And of course, I don't think that if you don't kind of do what you want to do, it necessarily means you live an unhappy life. But there is that kind of nagging doubt that you've not quite done what you want to do. And in this film, these individuals know exactly what it is that they want to do and what they feel is the best thing to do which in a way is an incredibly liberating thing to see from a human basis my favorite character is brother luke played by michael lonsdale and when he talks to brother christian about the reasons why he's going to stay he says how he has witnessed so much history and he's been there when the nazis were there and he knows the consequences of say, staying might lead to his death and it's not because he wants to be a martyr and to kind of be eulogised for centuries to come but it's because he is staying because of his free will and he actually says to Brother Christians I am a free man and this resonated with me very deeply because I am by my own admission quite a materialistic person I kind of obsess over trivialities you know, do I really want to buy a 3D television? Should I get rid of my Virgin Cable package and go with Sky because I get more channels in HD? This kind of crap occupies way too much of my mind than it should do, but although it probably doesn't define me as a person, it's certainly one of these things that I kind of feel a little bit embarrassed that I actually waste time thinking about when I watch a film like this. But going back to my own prejudices before I went into the film, I think what really hit me about it is how good an exploration of religion the film is. As an atheist I am, I wouldn't say I'm kind of, I don't kind of condemn anyone who is religious but I kind of, I do have quite a negative attitude towards the various religious institutions be it, you know, Islam, Scientology, Christianity, Judaism, whatever. They all, as an institution, I think, promote a certain degree of revulsion in me obviously the people who choose to believe in a certain religion don't but the institutions as a whole do kind of irk me but what I think I have kind of perhaps misguidedly thought in the past is how people are a slave to these respective religions and what you see in the film is that the monks don't help the villagers because they're trying to please God they don't stay there because they feel that they have to in order to curry favour with God. They stay there because it is what they want to do and helping the villagers is what they think their vocation in life is to do. Although their lives are dedicated to the worship of God and certainly do spend a lot of their time in prayer and quiet reflection trying to converse with God, they don't do what they do because they are for want of a word, claiming they are being instructed by God to do it. And of course I think you could take 
exception if you're being quite cynical to say kind of what well, they've dedicated their, obviously their lives to kind of this worshipping of God and obviously if you ask me he doesn't exist so it is when they spend three hours or whatever it, time out their day saying prayers and chanting it, it's a complete waste of time obviously it's a very cynical way of looking at it and it's kind of if you boil it down to a kind of like a, its component parts that is one of the things you might draw out of it but I think in the context of the film it's all about showing their world now as the impending danger which is out there which is these groups of extremists the film's dramatic impetus really kind of kicks in yet Buvel does not deviate from the meditative pace that the film establishes the film's style doesn't suddenly dramatically change as the threat level increases and roughly 45 minutes into this two hour film invariably the extremists do come to the monasteries headed by a guy called Ali who we do see brutally murder some Croatian workers by slitting their throats they come to the monastery demanding medical supplies for some of their wounded comrades Christian goes out there to talk to them and at first they will not put down their weapons whilst you're in their monastery and Christian rather forcefully takes them outside the monastery to listen to what they want and they obviously demand the medical supplies and they also demand one of the monks who's a doctor to go with them and Christian rather forthrightly tells them that they don't have the supplies to give away and that the the medic's actually too ill to go with them now he actually also says to Ali that in the Quran they should be accepted there because of their goodwill and Ali accepts this and decides to walk away without demanding the medicine or the medical help we might expect him to suddenly I don't know slap Christian or something like that and in the film's most touching scene as Ali walks away Christian says to him that they are celebrating the birth of the Prince of Peace and Ali stops and turns and says Jesus and of course they've actually arrived on Christmas Ali walks back to Christian apologizes to him and shakes his hand and says that as long as he is in charge no harm will come to them and I won't spoil the film but it's not him who comes back later on to kidnap them and this scene got me in a way which I didn't think it would do and what I really think helped this scene immensely was the fact that there was no kind of rousing score there was no kind of artificial manipulation of the scene it was just fantastic dialogue and a moment of humanity between two people perfectly captured by the director of gods and men is on the whole a beautiful film to look at and i think that director of photography caroline champeter does a fantastic job of expressing the tranquility and peace of the environment with which the monks live there doesn't seem to be many kind of artificial effects or filters placed over the cameras there's a sense i think that this is kind of showing the environment as is and it really does work to the film's favor because I think it makes it feel so much more connected to the monks and how they view themselves within the environment and again I think I, I personally felt really kind of emotional just at some of the simplicity of the scenes there's a moment where Brother Christian just walks around the surrounding area and we see him with a kind of a goat herder and walking by a lake and 
no dialogue or anything like that just simple images and you don't need any kind of dialogue to know what he's thinking about and how he is connecting the area and what it is the brothers do and that to leave that place would be wrong because it would actually be portraying everything they stand for what I think of Gods and Men does superbly though is it does not martyr these men I think we can in a way criticise their decision to stay and we can also celebrate the heroicism and how brave they were in deciding to remain with the people that they had decided to help I don't think you can safely say it's the most perfect film I think it does at times lack subtlety um, the kind of the scenes in which we kind of see them interacting with the village at time I think go a little bit too far in showing how hey why can't we all get along and although undeniably quite touching there is a metaphorical last supper before they are actually taken hostage which I think again it's a little bit too on the nose but and these are really kind of like minor gripes because it's rare that I think you see a film that really explores belief and humanity in such a profound and moving way and I think I've been really encouraged by the fact that Of Gods and Men has been a real kind of huge success as well it was made on a budget of 4 million euros and it's grossed over 45 million euros worldwide and on Blu-ray I can readily attest as well that this is turning into a very love Blu-ray episode but it does look really brilliant the image is crystal clear and I think it really um, brings the monastery to life it wasn't the actual location used but as I understand they did go to kind of quite great lengths to reproduce it faithfully for the film and on that respect it does get a huge recommendation for me you can actually pick up the blu-ray for I think about six or seven pounds on Amazon and it is region free so if you are based overseas you can get it imported over for pretty cheap okay and that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 frames cast you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com you can come to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com and you can follow me on twitter at 24framescast don't forget go over to the blog and check out the exclusive page and there will be some more episodes on there for you and I will speak to you soon I hope you enjoyed it many thanks bye